This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Andy Thomas, the author of Conspiracies, The Facts, The Theories, The Evidence, is here, and for the full two hours... Owen Wolf is my technical producer. Ryan White is the live stream producer. However, there is no live stream tonight. The live stream on my YouTube channel, Strange Planet, returns next week. At any time in our history, you'll find significant and seemingly indisputable events occurring. The kind that can change the course of our lives. The assassination of President John F. Kennedy. The terrorist attacks of 9-11. Yet, for every one of them, somebody, somewhere, will loudly dispute the official account, doubting that the truth has been told. In today's environment, with trust in authorities at an all-time low, conspiracy theories have found a new currency, and websites and social networking ensure they receive a wider and more rapid spread than ever before. But how do we separate truth from imagination? Was Princess Diana murdered, as many people think, despite all the official denials? Did NASA really go to the moon, when anomalies in the photographic records suggest otherwise? Could 9-11 really have been set up by agencies within the USA itself? Are we living in a world of control, of oppression, of habitual deception? Is this really how things are, or simply human nature, massively distorted through a dark lens? The truth probably lies somewhere in the middle. Andy Thomas is one of the UK's best-known authors and lecturers on unexplained mysteries, global cover-ups. He's the author of the acclaimed books, The Truth Agenda, and his latest, the second edition of Conspiracies. Andy Thomas, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm good, and it's uh, very nice to be here. Thank you. My pleasure. One of the things I like to ask authors who are associated with major publishers and, and have been very successful in this field is... How does one get a book like this published in this environment in 2020? Uh, maybe 10 years ago, it might have been a little easier. I mean, have things changed? Is it harder now? I think that uh, to get a book of some kind out there, you could argue, is uh, easier today. You've got many outlets. Self-publishing is easier. You, you've got Amazon that will you know, distribute your book online. So all of that on one level is easier. In the field that 
I work in, we're talking about mysteries and conspiracies and whatever. I think the problem that we now have is that there is such a, a media resistance to this kind of material that now getting a publisher who would be willing to take the risk to go into some of the areas that certainly I talk about. No, I don't think that has got easier. Uh, and I've been very lucky. I mean, I've been in print for, you know, um, a few decades now in one way or the other. So I've kind of got a background there. But no, I would imagine somebody trying to come into this brand new uh, would certainly struggle to find somebody that would put this stuff out there, which is a great shame. And I think that kind of censorship is one of the areas that, you know, I'm becoming very concerned about. But that said, it is not impossible. And there are avenues and uh, people should always try uh, and never assume that they won't get anywhere. You're published by Watkins. I'm not overly familiar with Watkins. Was there any sort of resistance or hesitation on their part? Or is this an, an area that they really embrace? Well, Watkins are very renowned publishers over here for covering more alternative areas. They've been running for a long time. Uh, no, they've been wonderful. Uh, they did, uh, so the, the book that uh, I have just sort of produced now is called Conspiracies, and uh, they did a, an earlier version of that some years ago. But this book is a, is a lot of new material. You know, the world has changed enormously in the last few years, and conspiracies have changed enormously. So um, they've embraced all of that. They've been very good, very supportive. They exist to try to get this kind of material out there. So you know, this is where the hope lies. There are, are some outlets still that will have these conversations, which I'm very pleased about. Um, so, you know, no, I, I've had nothing but support. Uh, and this is important because, you know, what we're talking about here, it's not subversive. It's not radical just to cause trouble. It, it's trying to get conversations going about things that – you know, should be discussed. Because if we don't, um, sooner or later, we're going to trip up on the consequences of not talking about this. So, uh, no, they've been very good indeed. The first edition came out in 2013, I believe. And uh, right. obviously, the landscape has changed dramatically. Uh, much of what it has, has happened that kind of coincides with uh, a lot of pushback from uh, authority and institutions and deplatforming and so forth. But the other thing that's happened alongside that is a great deal of validation you know the uh, the Snowdens and the the Julian Assanges and and uh, uh, a lot of the stuff that's come out regarding the deep state, which is now, I mean that that term is being bandied about in the mainstream media. Talk to me about uh, you know these this parallel track of pushback on the one hand and then validation on the other. Well, I think it's the validation that's led to the pushback. Uh, I think it was becoming very clear that a lot of the things that the conspiracy thinkers have been talking about for a long time, uh, it was becoming obvious they were true, or at least, you know, some of them were true enough that you couldn't just dismiss it all. Uh, and I think, of course, the internet was a, a big gift to that world to be able to have conversations and gather like-minded people together across the world in the way that we now can. Nobody, I think, had anticipated that occurring. 
And so that had created a lot of platforms for this kind of stuff to be discussed. And I think then the authorities had long been looking for a way to put the genie back into the bottle, if you like. They didn't quite know what to do. But the biggest gift for them was the advent of so-called fake news. Now, we all know there is some fake news out there, but that is a very subjective thing, of course. And uh, the conspiracy world has long believed that it is the mainstream media, it is the establishment that is putting out the fake news. But what they've managed to do is brand anybody that questions the status quo a purveyor of fake news. And therefore, they've now put in place an infrastructure that allows them to take that down. So, yes, people have been deplatformed. Videos are vanishing off of things like YouTube. And running a search for something today in a mainstream search engine, you'll find certain subjects have vanished completely, or at least you now have to scroll down several pages to find them. And that's where there's been a stroke of genius, if you like, in the world of the establishment. They've found that if they can keep pushing back, pushing back, their hope is that in a few years' time, nobody's even going to be able to find this stuff at all. And that's why those people who are aware that that's going on must not let that happen. You know, the fight back to that has to occur now. The two poles that exist, those who believe that everything is a conspiracy and, and those who believe that nothing is a conspiracy, and you have found a middle ground. That's a, a, the way I try to approach it as well. Just talk to me a little bit more about your approach and the methodology behind not only the original version of, of the book, but the new edition. Well, I mean, the first thing we need to say is, and the book makes this very clear and discusses this at some length. When you look back through history, you realize conspiracies do occur. And uh, I mean, it's funny because, yes, I meet people that say, well, I don't believe in conspiracies. And then you say to them, well, what do you think the gunpowder plot was that tried to blow up King James the first in 1605? And then you say, what do you think 9-11 was? And even if you believe that bin Laden carried out 9-11, it's still a conspiracy. So, you know, conspiracy is littered throughout history. Where you then get the differences, though, is who you point the finger at as to who was directly responsible for that conspiracy. And both with the gunpowder plot, some say that was a setup, that actually the Protestant government encouraged this group of Catholics to do this terror attack, or that's what it would have been, so that they could discredit them. And of course, some believe 9-11 was also a setup to discredit the Middle Eastern world to create avenues for wars and restrictions on freedom. So this is a pattern you see going throughout history. But to say that there are no conspiracies at all is to me to be blind, because clearly they are. But then to say that everything is a conspiracy is, of course, also potentially going too far. And I think the danger is that we live in an age where clearly we are deceived. Clearly, there are agendas coming at us from all sides. And you wind up losing your faith in so many things that as soon as you hear any news story, you jump to the opposite. You think, oh, that can't be true. Sometimes you might be right, but then the danger is things that might be true or partly true, you dismiss them out of hand. And that then leads to the more extreme arm of conspiracy thinking, which then blinds itself to certain facts. And, and I'm always trying, as you said there, to, to find a middle ground with this, because I totally understand why people 
don't have any faith at all in what the mainstream tells them. But equally, you need facts, you need evidence to show whether or not a conspiracy might have occurred. Um, to me, what I always try to do is to gather as much evidence as possible and try and not go to the polarities of complete denial or complete belief without evidence. And I would advise anybody looking into this world to look at that evidence. And what the book Conspiracies does, and the original, but very much uh, the new edition, is to look at what are the grounds for believing in these conspiracies. So put the opinion to one side for a moment. What are the grounds? Here they are. And let's look at the credibility of that. And you'll find that certainly with some conspiracies, you know, without any question, there is something here that should be talked about. Andy Thomas, Conspiracies, the Facts, the Theories, the Evidence, and uh, the second edition is uh, now available. We'll tell you how to get the book a little bit later. You offer up three definitions of conspiracy. Which one do you think resonates most, or which one do you think is, is the most accurate? I mean, I point out in the book that obviously, you know, you've got everyday ground level conspiracies occurring all the time. You know, a, a criminal attempt to rob a shop is a conspiracy, but that's not really what I'm talking about. So we accept that that goes on. There's corruption in uh, many levels of government, both globally and locally. But the kind of conspiracy that I'm trying to sort of deal with really in conspiracies is the one that says there are ruling elites, there are cabals, groups of people who do have enormous influence, who are manipulating the public by deceiving them, by, if you like, making them believe in certain things that may not be true, and distracting away from the nefarious things that they themselves are getting up to. You know, blaming others for things that go wrong when really it might be them actually causing this. And this is one of the big ones, using the deceptions that they are fostering to control us. You know, the, the public's very easily controlled by fear and by making the public ever more fearful of whatever it might be, crime, terrorism, climate change. You can then use that to get people to give away their freedom. And, of course, there's a balance to be struck here. There are things to be concerned about. There are certain restrictions we all have to accept to a degree. But if that then goes beyond a certain level and it's being based on something that might be a lie, that needs exposure. So the book is trying to look at those areas, really the bigger conspiracies, that, you know, something out there is trying to control us. And it's doing that by being very careful with how information flows, putting out false information, trying to stop you getting the real information. But sometimes it leaks out and sometimes there are clear anomalies in an official story of something that begins to make it look ever more likely that a conspiracy is at work. So really, that's what the book's trying to expose and then to say, how do we deal with this? How should we approach this? And of course, that's a whole other interesting area. One of the types of books on conspiracies that is embraced by the, the mainstream media that does get published readily, uh, it's often written by uh, journalists or sociologists or psychologists, and the, the aim of the book is to try and climb inside the mind of the conspiracy theorist to find out what makes them tick. And I, I find this particularly maddening. Have you noticed the prevalence of these types of books and their, whole, their, and their approach? 
Oh, definitely. I mean, you've identified something really important there. Yes, if you go to bookshops, especially, and you just sort of browse around and you look at the conspiracy books, nearly all of them, they set out by giving you the impression that they might be open to the conspiracies that the whole book is about. And then one by one, they try to debunk them normally by omitting all of the real evidence and making you think there is no evidence for them when actually there is but they haven't covered it or as you say making you feel that if you're prone to believing in these things that maybe you're slightly mentally damaged now in conspiracies there's a chapter where i actually look at the psychological sort of traits that the academics say that we must all suffer from if we're going to believe in these things and you list them one by one but then you find you can list almost exactly the same traits which they themselves exhibit you know a closed philosophy where they don't look at other evidence um, a tendency simply not to believe certain things almost everything that they say about the conspiracy world they are guilty of themselves and I mean over here in the UK so that's where I am uh, there's a very good professor called chris french very good academic but he does not believe in conspiracies and uh, there was once uh, a conference which was designed to discuss the conspiracy mindset and somebody said to him yeah but you've just said that this can't be true because you believe that anybody that believes in these things are slightly damaged but you're not looking at the evidence and he came back with a response we are not here to discuss evidence <laughs> and that's the problem if you don't discuss the evidence you're never going to understand why some people do believe these things so it's a laziness it's funny because again those same academics they will often point the finger at conspiracy thinkers and say well you're lazy this is an easy way to look at the world then it's all manipulated but they are lazy because they will not address evidence and it's very easy just to say that somebody over there is a little bit psychologically damaged uh, if you don't then look at the reasons as to why they believe what they believe, and you look, of course, and you often find that actually there's very good grounds. So, yeah, it's the classic. They are as guilty of what they accuse other people of. But, no, you're quite right. The mainstream media uh, doesn't let that one get out there, unfortunately. What is also disturbing, is, and you've touched on this, is the, the lack of intellectual curiosity on the part of journalists. They, I think a, a good journalist should be a conspiracy theorist in much the same way that, let's say, a good homicide detective should be a conspiracy theorist. Yeah, I mean, I think two things have happened here. I think one is that I think the world of journalism, again, it's coming often these days from a kind of a career journalism path. People are trained in certain ways and they are basically sort of corralled into certain areas that are acceptable to discuss. And anything that falls outside of that then gets branded conspiracy theory. And because we're encouraged to hold that in contempt, they won't go near it. Even if there's valid information and evidence there, they won't go near it because they're trying to protect their reputations. So that kind of creates a, a sort of a, a feedback loop, if you like, where they will only look at certain kinds of evidence and round and round that goes, and they just will never even glance at what is outside of that. So that's one end of it. But the other end of it is that there is evidence that certain journalists have been told not to pursue certain stories. I myself can name you two people that have worked for mainstream news outlets who've said that they were present when big stories were suddenly crushed. The phone rings and you're told you don't run that story and you don't ask questions why. 
So I do think that people right up the top do sometimes also give orders saying that certain areas should not be investigated. And then in the end, of course, again, if you are a journalist, you want to protect your career. So you don't go near it because you don't want to do anything that might jeopardize that. And so they go down a path of that is a cul-de-sac. Ultimately, it's a path of not looking anything outside this very narrow band that they have declared is real. So, yeah, I think those are the two reasons why that happens. But nonetheless, there are some people that do seem very intelligent, very good writers that you would think, wouldn't you, would be a little bit more willing to be open minded. But at the end of the day, they're going to put their careers first. The other thing I think that's happened as a result of that and people losing faith in the mainstream media is the birth of the civilian journalist. But that's also fraught with some some complications because, uh, you know, they don't always employ journalistic standards and so forth. Talk to me about that, that paradox. I mean, I think that's a bit of a problem because I know I've heard this very much uh, in the UK media, a lot of criticism from journalists towards people that post on social media or indeed people that put up what they call conspiracy material, which is whether you are not trained, you don't have the filters that we do to truly understand this knowledge. And while sometimes I think that could be true, equally, you know, what they are not considering is that maybe somebody with an alternative eye might spot something that they wouldn't might see an opening that should be discussed. And because, you know, as we've just clarified here, the journalistic world will not even consider certain areas, well, then other people have to. And if that means the other people doing this are not trained journalists, well, so be it. And some people have an innate ability anyway to get to the truth, to get to the debates that we should be having. And um, I don't think that we should just presume because they are not in the world of official journalism that they don't have any skills in that area. Absolutely, we need to be aware of people putting stuff around social media, especially, which might just be their own thoughts, might not be true. But if people are actually trying to expose evidence and analyze evidence, you know, I have to say some of what I've seen in those areas seems just as valid as what I'm reading in the press or seeing on the television which appears to me to be stupidly closed. So that's the problem. So, you know, they always see that. And I recognize that, you know, we are in a world where sometimes there isn't any filtration, but they themselves have shown that their filtration process can take them to a place whereby they stop considering things. And that is not right either. Uh, we're heading into a break shortly, but let's just begin the conversation here and we'll continue it after the break. And that has to do with how you approach sort of the rules of evidence and, and when you're researching, whether it's uh, the death of Princess Diana or, or 9-11, uh, how do you sort of separate wheat from chaff when it comes to, to information? Because I mean, this, this arena is fraught with, with speculation. In, it's often in the absence of the smoking gun. Yes, I think that's right. Although I think sometimes when there are smoking guns, uh, the authorities, uh, you know, put a lot of energy into making sure that they uh, can never be proved. But you can almost get there, but they're clever. So how do you get to the evidence? I mean, there's an earlier book of mine, which is well known, called The Truth Agenda. And the, the method of The Truth Agenda is whereby you stack up 
levels of evidence. So take something like 9-11. Okay, so you stack up the things that the official story says and whether it makes sense. If something doesn't make sense and it's clearly anomalous, you take that out of the pile. And equally, you stack up the other evidence that the official story does not look at and you do the same and you see what's clearly not relevant what is unsolved, what is clearly relevant. And if at the other end of that process, and it does take diligence, it takes a lot of cross-referencing, a lot of reading, and a lot of discernment, you can't just believe anything you hear first off, you've got to go and find out the grounds for why that might be true. If, though, at the end of that process, you've got one pile higher than the other, I think that even if you can't get to the absolute smoking gun, you can certainly demonstrate a high level of probability in one direction or another. Pardon the interruption. I'm going to jump in here. We'll pick this up on the other side. Andy Thomas, the author of Conspiracies, The Facts, The Theories, The Evidence. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show right after this. Strap yourself in. You're about to leave everything you thought you knew behind. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And the book is Conspiracies, The Facts, The Theories, The Evidence, the second edition now available to uh, book buyers. We were talking about the evidence, rules of, ev- of evidence, and I, I thought maybe we could jump into a specific case. My wife and I have been, uh, we just started watching The Crown. We're a little late to the dance. We've been watching it on Netflix. And, and that got me thinking in anticipation of speaking with you about, you know, all of the intrigue around the royal family and so forth, which leads us into a discussion of Princess Diana. And, um, you know, there's been, I, I think, at least two official inquiries. And uh, I, I don't know that, that we're any closer to the truth. Let's talk about some of the evidence revolving around her death. And one of the th- the commonalities I find with many conspiracies is uh, video cameras, security cameras that suddenly aren't working. <laughs> we, we recently experienced that with the Jeffrey Epstein case. But true or false, that the, there were there were a multitude of security cameras inside the Elma Tunnel that suspiciously weren't working the night of Princess Diana's death. Is that true? Uh, Well, look at it this way. The French authorities say it is true. So, yes, they say that for whatever reason, their CCTV was down that night for maintenance. But um, no. So if they did have any footage from the tunnel uh well we've never seen it they say it does not exist so you can be very sure you will never see that so yes uh, i'm afraid that is a, a truth or at least you know the reality is that footage is not in circulation and i suspect never will be another interesting piece of whether it was rumor whether it was ever validated was the blood sample from the limo driver Henri paul i've heard and i've read that uh, there was a mix-up in the lab and that the uh, the blood sample that was sort of officially cited as proof that he was drunker than a skunk was somehow mixed up and that it might have been replaced with a homeless person, these sorts of things. What can you tell me about that specific uh, piece of the puzzle? Yes, so that again is true. Now, even the authorities accept that they did accidentally, they say, mix up the blood sample with somebody else. So the, the blood sample um, tests, if you like, that are not reliable and cannot be looked at as any definite evidence. However, what the authorities say is what they then did was look, they did further tests on the eye gel fluid from the eye of Henri Paul, 
which apparently is a good way of also telling whether alcohol is in somebody's system. And they say that confirmed that he was indeed very drunk. But here's the big problem. Not a single witness, not a single piece of CCTV within the hotel, which shows him walking around, uh, shows him looking in any way drunk. Nobody has said that he was drunk. His behavior seemed to be completely normal. He'd had a couple of drinks at the bar, but no more than he normally would. This man was a professional driver, not Diana's general driver. That is true, but not a man that would be drunk on duty. And the other problem we have is that from the tests that we do know, or at least we are told are reliable, if he was as intoxicated as we are told he was, he shouldn't have been able to have even got out of bed that day, let alone get behind the wheel of a car and walk around looking normal. So these are very serious anomalies. And something else to be considered is that Henri Paul's uh, family, now in the run-up to the verdict of the inquest, which basically blamed him entirely for it, um, they were told he would not be to blame that actually he was going to be exonerated. But then, mysteriously, when the inquest did come out, and it did blame him, everything had changed, and they were never given an explanation for that. So it almost looks as if somebody did toy with the idea of not blaming a drunk driver, but then realised, yeah, but then what are we going to blame? It's easier to blame him. That sounds credible. So they left it all with him. But no, there there are many serious anomalies. And the whole Princess Diana case, now that's one of these things where if you just ask a basic question, which is, was she assassinated in a staged car crash? You can't quite give a straight answer to that. But if you ask a different question and you say, is there something suspicious about the way she died and the way the evidence has been dealt with, then you can say a definite yes. And if you can say yes to that, then, of course, we need to consider that we've not been told the whole truth. And again, it goes back to that truth agenda stacking. You stack up what makes sense about the Princess Diana story. And you stack up what doesn't. And what doesn't make sense, it's a very tall pile. And that means, therefore, we cannot rule out, of course, some of the conspiracy theorists. Well, let's see if we can add to the pile. The uh, the vehicle uh, in which she died, was that replaced last minute uh, and, in fact, had no seat belts in the back seat? Uh, No, that is unclear. Again, this is something we're not quite sure about. But as far as we're aware, it did have seatbelts in it, although not everybody in there was wearing a seatbelt. Interestingly, the the bodyguard, who's never gone on record, he says he doesn't remember it, uh, Trevor Reese, who's the only one that survived. Now, he did put his belt on. But interestingly, bodyguards aren't meant to ever put their seatbelts on. And yet we're told that he went against protocol. He did put his belt on and thus survived. Diana, Dodie, the driver didn't. So there's a lot of uncertainty about that. But we should also remember in terms of the vehicle itself is that we know that in the tunnel, there was a collision at some point, either during the maneuver, if you want to call it that, that destroyed the car or just before it, where a white Fiat hit that Mercedes. Now, we know this because it left its paint on the body of the Mercedes and then sped away. That's, of course, what would be very useful to see on the CCTV. Maybe we would have found out where it went. Um Because they didn't have that footage, the authorities said, well, they couldn't trace the car. But then Mohammed El-Fayed, 
who used to own Harrods in London, and yes. whose son Dodie had just died in this crash. Now, he was not happy with that at all, and being a man of some means, hired his own private detectives, and they tracked down an individual called James Andanson, who did own a white Fiat, and they thought that it might have been him. Now, Andanson said that it wasn't. He said, as you might, I suppose, that it, he wasn't there that night. But then... Shortly after being exposed, he was then found dead in another car, which had been set fire to seemingly from the outside. The keys thrown away. There was a hole in the skull. It looked like he'd actually been decapitated at some point before the fire in the car started. And yet the French authorities ruled that one a suicide. Now, if that's a suicide, it's a very clever <laughs> one. But this is what we're expected to believe, and nobody, when it came to the British inquest, nobody thought that even deserved discussion. So, to my knowledge, that was never even raised at the inquest. And that's the clever thing. You have an inquest, presumably, to get to the bottom of something, but often uh, what an official inquest will do is, of course, admit omit all the uh, important evidence that might show there was a conspiracy and thus you get the verdict that you want all along by just omitting the important evidence and certainly that does seem to be the case with diana who as we know remember she had believed there was a plot to kill her we've got her letters to paul burrell her butler she also has said the same to her solicitor lord mishcon she said look there is a plot to kill me um so you've got that aspect why did she believe that people try to say well she was paranoid she was a bit over emotional and yet on the other hand did she know something that we didn't so you know that's a whole other angle to it and then very strange things, like on the night of the crash, she was taken to the hospital in Paris, and the French doctors expected her to survive. Now, there is a story, and I cannot 100% verify it, but that in the middle of the night, the English doctors arrived and took over and said to the French staff, thanks very much, you know, we'll take over now. The French thought that Diana, though badly injured, had been made comfortable and would survive. But then when the English doctors took over, soon after they announced that Diana had died. And a lot of the French staff there thought that was strange. And uh, it is said that one of them was going to write a book about what he then witnessed. But uh, having announced this, he then died in a strange car crash shortly afterwards. So if that story is true, which some say that it is, uh, obviously that, that adds a whole other layer of intrigue to this. So... The whole Diana thing is very, very peculiar. Uh, and I mean, we should remember that before she died, because she had split up with Charles and was now giving these rather dark sort of interviews, threatening to reveal the truth about the dark forces, quote, running the country and the royal family. You know, she could well have been making a lot of enemies. And she was also... Um, going out at that stage with Dodi Al-Fayed, whose mother is Samira Khashoggi of the Khashoggi arms dealing family. Now, maybe they didn't want a peace nick at the table because she was very successfully campaigning against landmines at that time. Indeed. I'm, I'm going to jump in here, Andy. We'll take another time out, come back and pick up on that thread and tug on it when we come back. The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. It's 
it's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Andy, before the break, we were talking about Princess Diana's death, and you were talking about her activism in the anti-landmines in Angola and places like that. And uh, her potential, I guess, mother-in-law was uh, part of the Khashoggi family, who are huge arms dealers. So are you suggesting that maybe she was targeted from the Fayette side rather than the, the Windsor side? Well, I am not saying anything, but these are the theories that are out there, and, and I list it in the book as something that should be considered. So, yes, you've got, in a way, you've got people queuing up, wanting to get rid of Diana. I mean, remember, Mohammed al-Fayed famously blamed the Duke of Edinburgh, Prince Philip. So he said that he gave the orders. Now, again, that cannot be proven. But it's worth noting that in Diana's letters to Paul Burrell, she states categorically that she thought Prince Charles was behind the plot to kill her. She states that in one of the letters. And she states that the reason she thought Charles would want her dead was because he wanted to marry not Camilla Parker Bowles, as she was then, but Tiggy Leg Book. Now, Tiggy Leg Book had been nanny to William and Harry when they were young. And Diana believed that she had been having an affair with Charles. So that was actually Diana's belief that, yes, Camilla was on the scene, but she thought, as she states in the letter, that Camilla was a decoy, quote, that's what she thought. And, I mean, there's weird things around Camilla because shortly before Diana had her crash, Camilla had a car crash. Now, hardly anybody remembers this now. No, not aware of that. You look up up the original newspaper reports and you can just about still find this in the archive. Camilla had a car crash in the country lanes not far from her home and she scrambled out of the vehicle after she went into a ditch and managed to escape and she fled across the fields, which you're not meant to do at a crash scene, of course. Um, One of the reasons she gave was that she feared that perhaps somebody might be trying to kill her. Now, some have speculated, was there actually a plot to get rid of Camilla first? Uh, to get somebody out of this horrible tangle of Camilla, Tiggy, Charles and Diana, and having failed with Camilla, thought, well, it's going to look too obvious if we try again. I know, let's get rid of Diana, because a lot of people wanted, it would seem, to get rid of Diana at this point. So that's one theory, is that that in itself was an attempt just to take somebody out of this. Now, Presumably, this didn't go the way that uh, Charles would have wanted, if Diana is correct, that he did want her dead. And, of course, he did wind up marrying Camilla. This is where it's very, very difficult to absolutely come up with a solution. Because, of course, others say, well, maybe Diana was pregnant with Dodie's baby. Now, that's denied. The official reports deny that. They said they tested and she wasn't. But, of course, that is something that some people do believe. Maybe some say the royal family didn't want the Muslim bloodline entering in, if you like. Um, So you've got all of that aspect there. I mean, the only thing I would say to that is that, I mean, Diana had been going out previously uh, with the... Asnat Khan, who was another Muslim, a doctor, and nobody had seemed to worry about that influence there. But the theory says that uh, with Dodi, this was different for some reason. So, you know, these are all the things that need to be considered. And the rush to embalm? Yes. I mean, there were strange things about the way that they did that. Nobody really had much sight of the body. Uh, I mean, that is something which occurs in a number of famous deaths, of course. So 
Yes, here we are. We're left basically knowing that we've not been told the whole truth. But that's a classic conspiracy area. Do you then say that you can absolutely prove that the car crash was in some way engineered? If so, there's a few anomalies about that. Are we saying that Henri Paul knew that he was doing that? Had he been mind-controlled to do that? Did he think he would survive the crash? You know, there's anomalies that are thrown up by that theory. And yet, even if they weren't anything to do with it, and it was to do with the white fiat, we do know there is a CIA assassination technique that involves basically running people off the side of a road into a wall or into you know a cliff or whatever. So you can't say that's never happened because we do know it's a technique that has been used before. But you're left with a question mark. And yet you cannot look at the whole of the evidence around Diana and say that it all makes sense because very clearly it doesn't. Indeed. We'll uh, step away again for a moment, come back and continue our conversation with Andy Thomas, the author of Conspiracies, The Facts, The Theories, The Evidence. Back with more. Stay with us. The truth will set you free, but first it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Before we get back to Andy Thomas, a quick programming note. Next week, if you're a regular Coast to Coast AM listener, you'll be familiar with the name Lex Lonehood. He's one of Coast's fine webmasters, but he's also an accomplished writer and author. And his new book, Nightmare Land, travels at the borders of sleep, dreams, and wakefulness. He'll be here for the full two hours. And then, the following week, Marcus Allen, the publisher of Nexus Magazine, will be here to discuss the lunar landing hoax. We're back with Andy Thomas. The book is Conspiracies, The Facts, The Theories, The Evidence. We're going to get into some more specific uh, conspiracies in the second hour, but I wanted to ask you something of a slightly different nature, and that is one of the big areas of concern in this field, in this arena. It's a big tent. And that is, there's a lot of haters out there. And sometimes conspiracy gets tainted with anti-Semitism. And it's often, it's sort of the big elephant in the room. And it's something I think we need to address. I mean, that's something I'm very vigilant about because there are people that try to get on the radio and they have their agendas and so forth. How do you approach that? Yeah, I mean, this is a tricky one. And I mean, in the book Conspiracies, there's a chapter called How Far Should Conspiracies Go? Now, of course, there's an old one, very old conspiracy theory about Zionist plots to control the world. And there are people out there who believe that. And they believe in the old document, the Protocols of Zion, and so on. Now, that to me it is too simplistic. I don't believe any one group in the world is ever responsible for everything. You know, we live in a very complex world. Uh, and so that is not personally my belief. But at the same time, what I don't think is healthy is just to say, well, those people should go to prison if they believe that. Now, that doesn't really help anybody. I mean, even Noam Chomsky, who, of course, is of Jewish descent, even he said he didn't believe Holocaust deniers should go to prison. I mean, A, all it does is actually attract more attention to why they went to prison. Uh, um, but B, it doesn't. to me, that just doesn't solve the issue. Uh, I do think that at the end of the day, 
anything that is believed should be dealt with fairly, but also firmly if it's obviously wrong. But just to say you will not hear this discussed, you will not discuss this, doesn't end it. It's like we've got an issue in some areas with people that question vaccinations. Well, now that's become the ultimate taboo. Yes. Right. You can't. You can't go near it. If you go near it, you're going to be deplatformed. You're going to. You're not going to be heard out. It's you know been sort of put to the point where you're almost you know you're liable for murder if you say that you shouldn't vaccinate. But then, of course, that means that anything that might ever come up that might need looking at, you know, there might be mistakes made in the world of vaccination that now will never happen because you can't go near it. Is that a wise world? There's a fine balance to be struck here. And I'm not somebody that stands up and says, I know everything about everything. I mean, I don't. And I'm very clear in the book when I raise very contentious issues to say when, you know, it does look likely that this is the case or we don't know. But I think the minute you get into this world of saying, right, you're going to prison for believing that, you're on a rocky road. Because, I mean, if you take, say, 9-11, there are some U.S. senators, I believe, who've actually gone on record as saying that questioning 9-11 should be on the same level as questioning the Holocaust and should be made illegal. Well, I mean, if you look at the evidence around 9-11, whatever you believe about it, absolutely there are grounds to doubt it or to doubt the official story. Um, Then what? So they're going to go to prison. Then what? Who's next? So anybody that questions vaccination, they're off to prison. Anyone that questions climate change, yeah, they're off to prison as well. Do you see what I mean? Yes, yes, absolutely. Where does that go? So to me, that is not a clever path to take. It's a stupid path. And it doesn't mean people won't believe it. You can shut them up, but you're creating extremism, which then doesn't have an outlet, and then starts to do more and more extreme things to try to prove its beliefs. And it doesn't it doesn't enable the world to shine a light onto it and say, look, here's the truth of it. So that's not a solution in my view. So, yeah, it's a very, very tricky one to say to somebody, you can believe this theory and this theory and that, but you can't believe that one. But at the moment, we're, we're certainly in a direction where actually, if you believe in any conspiracy theory, you're going to get vilified for it. And that's what's now been built up with the new censorship. And make no mistake, there is censorship big time, which is now out there, which is trying to remove this completely from any online platform. And we've not even seen the, the beginning of how far that's going to go yet. We're, we're still in early days. Right. Well, where do you think it's headed? Is it is it going to get worse before it gets better? Or do you what do you see? is the the ultimate resolution of this if any in terms of censorship and deplatforming and clamping down on dissent and diverse opinions one has to hope that sooner or later an innate human spirit will say hang on a minute this is going too far I mean, you find if you look back through history, there have been attempts before to crush dissent by controlling information and sooner or later it will get out there again um We've enjoyed, I think, the freedom of having the internet for so long that we took it for granted. Uh, And I think then when the fake news thing came along, we we allowed it too quickly to be withdrawn from us again, or almost it's happened before we've realized what's going on. And I think that the thing is, some people in the the truth-seeking world, let's call it that, they can see what's going on. But others on the outside that wouldn't normally seek out this kind of material, they're, they're not even aware that it's vanishing. 
and that again would seem to be the hope of the authorities is that once it's vanished you know in the future people won't even know this stuff existed therefore they won't look for it maybe that's the hope i think it's misconceived i think the stuff will will come back and one of the things that i've advocated is that those people that are concerned about you know some of the areas we're talking about here they need to preserve this knowledge because if it's being taken down off the internet well it has to be kept somewhere because i believe there will come a time when people will come back to wanting to know about these kinds of things and that knowledge that information needs to be preserved ready for it to be rediscovered but certainly at the moment no we're in a very worrying time where people are being branded purveyors of fake news when in fact all they're doing is expressing an opinion sometimes based on evidence so we're absolutely in an orwellian agenda here which is trying to just take information away from people while at the same time feeding them propaganda and we see this every day you've only got to put the bbc on to hear that right. or any name any channel you know i'm just using that as an example so we're being hit with propaganda and and yeah let's call it a kind of a fake news and yet they've turned it around and said that anybody that questions their fake news, it's those outside that are putting the real fake news out. And of course, in the end, everybody goes mad and doesn't know what to believe. And maybe that's part of the agenda as well. Yes, yes. The Some people pinpoint the, the weaponization of the word conspiracy uh, to a period in the, the late 60s after the Warren report came out uh, and, and the, there's been a memo cited from the CIA talking about how we have to label uh, JFK assassination researchers as conspiracy theorists. But I've also read where that's been discounted. No such memo exists. Have you looked into uh, sort of the origin of the weaponization of the word? Yes, and again, as you said there, getting to the bottom of it, as usual, is difficult. But I'm not sure how much I care about that. I mean, there's no question that the term conspiracy theorist has been, it's it sort of been fostered to become a term of abuse. And a lot of people in the conspiracy research world try to avoid it like the plague. But I've always kind of taken a more balanced approach with that. Now, in the book, I give the dictionary definitions of conspiracies and what a theory is. And actually, I mean, listen, we know conspiracies exist. There's no question about that. Um, and we also know, as we've established in this interview here, you can't always get to the absolute 100% truth of something, but you can discuss it. And therefore, you need occasionally to theorize what is wrong with that. So if that makes you, by definition, a conspiracy theorist, well, so what? And my response, if somebody says to me, well, you're just a conspiracy theorist, is yes, and have you seen the reasons why I am? <laughs> and then, of course, that is when I then indeed try to, uh, you know, show to people why there are grounds to discuss all of this. Great so, answer. I, I have to jump in. We'll, uh, we're at the top of sure. the hour. We'll come back and uh, continue to delve into Andy Thomas's book, the second edition, Conspiracies, the Facts, the Theories, the Evidence. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show right after this. My name is Richard Serrett. From Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. 
Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Welcome aboard, everyone. And just a reminder, no live stream tonight on my YouTube channel, Strange Planet. Andy Thomas is here. The book is Conspiracies, The Facts, The Theories, The Evidence, the second edition revised and expanded. Andy, for many people of a certain age, the uh, sort of the granddaddy of conspiracy theories is uh, JFK. For others, it's it's 9-11. What was that pivotal point for you? I mean, I began in this world with an interest in unexplained mysteries, you know, crop circles, UFOs, all the kinds of things that get laughed at and dismissed. But I got drawn in because I had my own experiences and encounters and I thought you know I've got to find out more it was a passion to find out more not having any idea what the answer might be open to all possibilities so what I quickly realized though was that even in those realms I mean just take something like crop circles which are these shapes which appear in the fields every year right whether you think they're all man-made or whether you think some are coming from some other force actually doesn't matter in terms of are they being accurately represented by the mainstream and the answer is no they are not and I spotted that very easily so I'd started to do my own research and started to get together with other people looking into them. And yet we could see stories going out there in the mainstream that were totally fake, getting the facts wrong, saying things that you could prove were not true. Whatever you thought about crop circles, they were not true. And then, of course, you begin to rub shoulders with people who are investigating other mystery areas. And, of course, soon you come to conspiracies. Because if you're saying there's a mystery, it's either a mystery because you can't quite get to the bottom of it, or it's a mystery because it's being actively covered up. And certainly things like UFOs, I mean, without any question, there's a whole chapter about UFOs in the conspiracies book. We are not being told the truth about them. And that becomes blindingly obvious if you use the Freedom of Information Act, for instance, to get documents released about UFOs. You discover that when they release them, they redact everything. Everything's covered up that they don't want you to see about a subject they then tell you doesn't exist. Well, clearly it does. So... It became very clear to me very early on that if we're not being told the truth about those areas, well, therefore, I must be open that we're not being told the truth in a lot of other areas. And I got to know people studying this, people like Marcus Allen of Nexus magazine, who's another very interesting person, well worth talking to. Uh, and you begin to realize there's a world out there that is misrepresented in the mainstream media, misrepresented by the authorities. And then you have to say, why? And because I've just always been drawn to try to want to get a balanced view on this, I've sort of wound up in this place where I give a lot of lectures. I write a lot of articles and, of course, the books trying to get a balanced conversation. I'm not interested in foisting any belief on anybody without some level of evidence. And more than anything, I just want conversations to be had about these areas because we are not being allowed to. And when you're not allowed to do something, you realize there's got to be an agenda. And so trying to make it clear that we should look at these areas and trying just to draw people in to keep these conversations alive, that's really become my main motivation now.
Uh, I was going to talk about the uh, the moon landings a little later, but since you mentioned Marcus Allen, and, and I have had the pleasure of speaking with him, and, and he has uh, talked extensively about uh, the lunar landing hoax and so forth, I, I thought maybe we could jump in since you brought up his name. Where are you in that arena, the lunar landing hoax? Because I think, you know, I, I do believe that we, we put man on the moon, but I think Marcus Allen has done some interesting work with regards to the photographs and how it would have been possible for astronauts astronauts wearing those big, I think you referred to them as big gardening gloves and the big helmets, not able to see through a, a viewfinder properly, handling these Hasselblad cameras. He makes some excellent points with regards to the photographs. Where are you at in this whole discussion? So there's quite a long uh part uh, of the book which looks at this because I mean the moon landing theories they're a classic area which really polarizes people so those that grew up with it and they're very emotionally attached to the idea that we went to the moon they feel utterly affronted if anybody questions that and yet and I think in more modern times with generations coming through that don't have that emotional attachment and now have access to you know photo analysis software for instance that nobody could have dreamt of in the 70s um, they're looking at it again with a different eye and just looking directly at the evidence and anybody that decides to just look at the evidence and put the beliefs out the way uh, you have to say that some of the evidence is not reliable now that doesn't mean we did or didn't go to the moon and I've never concluded that one way or the other um, but Again, I need to consider that evidence. And Marcus makes a point that the photographs, and others have made this point too, of course, when you look at a number of angles, the lighting, the shadows, a number of even anomalies about the roles of film themselves and how would the film have survived a vacuum and the extremes of light and dark and cold and heat and so on, you begin to realise there are things that don't make sense. And there are other things you look at some of the photographs of the lunar lander and in all six missions there is no evidence on the ground underneath those landers of any blackening or any soot or even any displacement of moon dust which everybody said all blew everywhere well there's no visual evidence of that and then on the other hand you look at the videos of the craft coming down and they're creating huge displacement of dust that you would have thought would have left some kind of mark on the surface but there isn't anything so those are things where you have to say hang on one part of this evidence is not hooking up with the other part and therefore something's wrong and you know we could be here all day there are many grounds to at the very least say we've not been told the whole truth about the moon landings now as you've intimated there some believe we did go but that the photographs never came out and they, they had to restage either some or all of them in a studio later on because they had to show the world that they'd been. But then others look at the effects of radiation on the astronauts and wonder, actually, how did they survive as well as they did? The astronauts' responses are very strange. They contradict each other sometimes. Some have said the stars were very bright in space. Others have said you couldn't really see them. They'd be very disappointing. Uh, you've got very strange responses. I mean, if you look at the crew of Apollo 11, just when they've landed and they're doing the press conferences, these look like three very depressed men. They do not look like men punching the air hey, we've been to the moon. Yes, Now, yes. that doesn't prove, it doesn't prove anything, and I accept that, but it's odd. 
and there are again stacks of anomalies that you can put there which show that at the very least something's not right with the official story and just to dismiss the lunar hoax theories completely without looking at them now that to me is not sensible and I know as soon as you mention it, if I'm giving a lecture, and I often lecture to people that are they're not alternative types at all, and you, you mention the lunar hoax theory, everybody laughs. And then you say, yes, but have you looked at the evidence? And then by the time you've shown them the evidence, they've realized, oh, okay, there's something to consider here at the very least. So – but we're encouraged to laugh at people like that because, of course, we went to the moon because we all watched it on the telly at the time. Well, we watched something on the telly at the time. But it doesn't prove that it was on the moon. So that's the problem. It's like the Princess Diana thing. You can say, was she assassinated? And you can't answer that. But then you ask the different question, is there something strange? And the answer is yes. And that's the same with the moon landings. Did we go to the moon? We can't be sure. Is there something odd about the evidence? Yes. And so, you know, people must make up their own minds about it, but they need to at least be aware of the evidence. And I, well, some polls around the world at the 50th anniversary this year, just gone past, um, put it that over 50 percent of some populations don't believe that we went to the moon. So on that grounds, you know, anybody that does believe might be in the minority soon. So, you know, polls are very unreliable, I know. But, you know, the fact that it's getting near that is still very telling. The uh, the question of the Van Allen belts and that uh, it would be deadly for, for humans traveling in this little soup can through those Van Allen belts, they simply wouldn't survive it. I've, I've heard explanations, though, that there is a way to avoid sort of the thickest bands of the Van Allen belts and to minimize exposure. Uh, do you find that response to that sort of argument reasonable, credible? Well, yes, of course. And now this is how it's argued. They say, I oh, know you could get through them. But that still doesn't really explain the amount of exposure they would have had on the lunar surface. Uh, I mean, you know, that's outside of the Van Allen belts, as far as I'm aware. So, you know, there's still, even if you say they found a way to get through, there's still big problems. And one of the interesting things is that they flew uh, certainly a lot of those missions at times of very high solar activity as opposed to low solar activity. Now, I know there are some sources out there that say they made sure there wasn't any high solar activity. You then look at the graphs, and that's not true. They seem to take no notice of that at all, and yet didn't seem to think that that would be a problem. So, yeah, there there are certainly many, many unanswered questions about this. Uh, I mean, we could be here all day. We could look at the scenery that you see in the back of some shots. There are some bits of scenery that seem to recur in completely mutually exclusive shots. And you think, well, hold on a minute. How did that happen? There are scale issues with some pictures of the craft, which some people say, therefore, is due to the fact that it's a model shot and not a real craft on the moon. Some, of course, say we did go to the moon, but actually what they found there, they couldn't show. A number of astronauts have said that they witnessed UFO activity. So that is on record. Uh, did they find something they weren't allowed to show the world? Again, you have to make up your own mind. But it, its I don't think until 
a truly independent mission flies to the moon and lands next to the landing sites and takes exactly the same pictures with the same lighting conditions that we see in the NASA pictures. Unless somebody does that, it's not going to be proved one way or the other. You know, we see orbital shots and they show us dots and trails and they say these are the landing sites and they may well be. But until you get down there on the ground, you're not going to be able to prove it. And I think very cleverly they've said because they're at cultural heritage sites, they're never going to allow anybody <laughs> to visit them. Well, that's a, a good let out, isn't it? So, but I think sooner or later somebody will one day and then we'll know. And I think until that day, this is going to be one of those areas that's going to be argued around and around, and uh, it's not going to stop anytime soon. One of the arguments that that, uh, skeptics or debunkers uh, will throw in a conspiracy theorist's face is, well, how do you keep something of this magnitude a secret? I'm not sure how many people worked on the, the Apollo project. It must have been, you know, in the tens of thousands by the time you add them all up. Uh, and so they will say, somebody would have spoken out. Somebody would have leaked a document. Somebody would have blown a whistle. How do you keep conspiracy secret, particularly in the age of smartphones, everyone's sh- videoing and, and the Internet? Well, that's not really an argument I've ever gone along with because uh, – let me take NASA. So let's get pre-phones. Let's just go back to the 60s. Nobody is saying what. Well, not that I'm aware of, that the whole of NASA was in on a hoax. I mean, clearly not. Rockets took off, capsules splashed down. I would say the vast majority of anybody within NASA would have just believed it happened as we were shown. So, no, that would be ridiculous, the idea that everybody would be in on it. But some have raised questions about where the transmissions came from. All the people in mission control may well have believed they were talking to the moon. I mean, if you watch the old movie Capricorn One, which is a classic movie about men faking a a mission to Mars, they do show how actually, even though it's only a movie, but they do show how you could pull that off with only a very few people knowing about it. And how do you stop them talking? Well, you either threaten them or you kill them, or you mind control them. I mean, we shouldn't forget programs like MKUltra and even entertainers, like you know, who hypnotize people. You can actually plant false memories in them. You can blank bits of their memory out. You can't be sure that this didn't happen to some of the people that might have been involved. So you wouldn't actually need that many people. And similarly with 9-11, some have said, look, If any kind of level of authority was involved in at least helping that to occur, if not causing the whole thing, how would you do it with so many people? Well, actually, and there's been a number of studies into this, you'd only need a few people in key positions of command and control just creating a little bit of confusion. And by the way, the evidence suggests that is what happened to actually allow something like that to happen. Most people wouldn't know. They would just take it as what they were seeing. You only need a few key cornerstones to be manipulated and the rest will do itself so yes today i'm sure it has got harder to keep things quiet and i think that is why some things would now not be attempted today in the way that they were back then Um, but that said 
I mean, you look at the world of CIA and that. I mean, these people aren't stupid. They know very well how not to spread information on certain things. And yes, you will get leaks sometimes. But, uh, you know, when you look at even the faintest hints that we get of some of the programs that are going on in the world today that the public is told nothing about, actually, it is very possible to withhold stuff from the public. And I mean, just to go into the unexplained mysteries point for a minute, and this is mentioned in the book. There was an outbreak over the last 10 years or so of strange spirals swirling around in the sky. And we know they're real. Thousands of people filmed them. There was a famous one in Norway in 2009. But now they still get seen, but they don't get reported in the mainstream. So even though lots of people are filming them on their smartphones and sharing them around, the mainstream does not report them. And that looks to many people like a big cover-up. It's probably a secret weapon or something being tested. But actually, it is possible to keep that out of the public consciousness. So you'd be amazed. I know we think that couldn't happen now, but I'm not so sure. And because, sadly, a lot of the public have been bred to not having inquiring in minds anymore, they will often never even know that they don't know something and they won't worry about the fact that they don't. And the people that do know something's going on and try to call attention to it, well, you just say they're mad, they're lazy conspiracy thinkers, don't talk to them. But of course, as we've already established here, that's really not quite fair. Right now, I think your your counter argument is 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 spot on, and, and um, compartmentalization. Uh, I mean, a, a perfect example would be the Manhattan Project. How many people worked on developing uh, the hydrogen bomb? And eventually, you know, near the very end, it did kind of leak out. I think to the Soviets, but for many many years, scientists went to work on building this bomb. N- not even their wives knew what they were doing that day. So, I mean, that's a, a perfect or Operation Overlord, D Day. Uh, how many how many thousands of people were involved in the planning of the uh, the Allied invasion of Europe, and yet no one knew. That's absolutely right. And of course, over here, uh, we had the Enigma machine. So in World War II, uh, we managed to crack the codes of uh, the Nazi military. And yet that, how they did it, was kept quiet for decades, even after the war. Everybody involved was absolutely sworn to secrecy. Family, spouse never knew what they were doing. And even once they cracked the code, they sometimes had to allow certain attacks still to occur that they could have stopped because they didn't want the Germans to know that they'd cracked it. So that took a long time before anybody found out how that works. So you cannot be sure what is going on today. It might still be decades before anybody hears anything about it. Uh, we're coming up again on a, on a break, and when we come back, I want to uh, talk on, uh, about 9-11, but let's just kind of uh, ease into that now. And uh, you, you talked about whistleblowers. If you had to cite uh, for, for a skeptic or a debunker who, who holds firmly to the official narrative of 9-11, what, what one whistleblower would you speak to them about? Well, I mean, one of the problems when we talk about whistleblowers is, of course, that the whistleblowers these days don't tend to last very long. Um, I mean, if you take the Kennedy shooting, you'll find that some of the people that knew too much died suspiciously early in strange circumstances. Um, We have quite a few witnesses to 9-11 who, you know, have done the same. One of the witnesses to the strange collapse of building number seven, uh, he, you know, it's 
Barry Jennings this is. I mean, he died early, doesn't prove anything, but then you find this person died a bit early and that person over there. So, you know, that is something which needs to be considered here. So any whistleblower that was actually going to go big might think twice. Some firemen have found their careers have been ruined by this. And just to briefly go back to the moon landings, Although we may say, why didn't somebody blow the whistle there? Don't forget the astronaut Virgil Grissom or Gus Grissom. He went on record at press conferences saying that he didn't think they were going to get to the moon. He should have been the first man on the moon. He didn't think that it was technically feasible. And when he started to say that publicly, he started to get death threats. And he believed they were coming from within NASA. And he actually said to his wife one day, if there is ever a serious accident in the space program, it's likely to be me. Well, he was then one of the people that died shortly afterwards in the Apollo 1 fire on the launch pad. Now, again, not proof, but the Grissom family investigated. They believed that was sabotage. They believe Virgil Grissom was murdered. And the NASA safety inspector who was brought in to investigate not only that fire, but also the technical feasibility of the Apollo program, Thomas Ronald Barron, after having said he thought it was sabotage and he also didn't think Apollo was ready to go to the moon, uh, he then dies in a strange car crash shortly afterwards. Coincidence? <laughs> Maybe. But anybody else thinking of going public, you know, you might think twice, and that's the problem. And I think we have that with 9-11. But with 9-11, there are certainly enough anomalies that you can identify to show that categorically, whatever you think did happen, we've not been told the truth. We'll, we'll uh, tug on some of those threads when we come back. Andy Thomas, the author of Conspiracies, The Facts, The Theories, The Evidence, second edition. More in a moment. Wrap yourself in. You're about to leave everything you thought you knew behind. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Andy, before we get into 9-11, how do people get a copy of Conspiracies? Okay, well, it's going to be out in the U.S. in February, uh, so it's coming very, very soon. It's already out here in the U.K., so uh, just hold on two or three weeks, and it's going to be there. Uh, if you go onto Amazon, you will find it's already listed up there. Look it up, Conspiracies by Andy Thomas, uh, and there's information about the book on my own website, which is truthagenda.org. So that's truthagenda.org, and, and you can find out stuff about it there as well. But yeah, in the U.S., it's going to be out there very soon, so, and it also Australia, New Zealand, but it's already out here in the UK. Uh, 9-11. Uh, there are a number of camps within the, the, the 9-11, if I can use the term, the truth movement, uh, one of which has become almost like a religion, and, and that has to do with controlled demolition of the uh, the WTC buildings. Uh, and and um, one of the things that I always point out is I think sometimes when it comes to 9-11, we become so hyper-focused on the method uh, or the means by which, uh, you know, the buildings were, uh, came down rather than, let's say, for example, the other important uh, parts of a criminal investigation, and that is the, um, the, uh, the motive and the opportunity. How do you feel about uh, the, the, the focusing almost to the exclusion of everything else uh, with controlled demolition? 
I think the problem with the falls of the towers is that, of course, they're very, very visual. They were recorded from many different angles. And these are the images that have been seared into people's minds around the world, you know. And if you were present at the time and you watched that at the time, you're never going to forget that. And so, therefore, they inevitably are going to be the areas most scrutinized. Now, were there no other anomalies and it all made complete sense that what you see is just a structural failure because of the fire because of the damage you know we wouldn't be talking about this today then when you realize the things we weren't told at the time and you see very strange visual anomalies in the way they fall explosions going off far below the level of the collapses which look to some like demolition charges and so forth um this is where you have to say, well, hold on. If this was just a natural collapse, it, it it should look like this and not like that, you know. And so because people can see this and assess this with their own eyes, of course, they're going to start to go into this in fine detail, as indeed many people have. And of course, some people will then see things that aren't anomalous and they think they will because they don't know about buildings collapsing. But that's when you have to go to the technical experts. People like Richard Gage would be a good example from Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth. And they show absolutely that the way those towers collapse makes no sense if the way they collapse that we are told is the way is the true way and that's when it becomes more interesting so yeah everybody's seeing the footage they're analyzing that because it's what they saw and what they remembered at the time but you then have to add in the many problems and the many accounts of explosions going off inside those towers even before they began to collapse molten material rolling down the sides of the towers which some say is metal although it could not have burned that hot to have done that and so on and so forth without extra help that's when again you stack up the truth agenda pebbles if you like and you say absolutely something is very very wrong here but the towers collapsing it, it's become the main point of contention i think because it's what everybody saw they could witness it some of the other areas like what happened when the plane entered the pentagon harder to say because you can't see it and there's very little footage available of the explosion at the pentagon what happened on flight 93 you can't really say there's reports of conversations with the people on board but it's not visual so those seem a little bit vaguer to some people although they are very important and that's where when you start to add in everything and reports of what happened inside the war room or the bunkers where dick cheney was and conversations that took place there and the strange accounts of the hijackers and where they were and where the planes were going and who knew what when when you add all of that in I don't think it is just a classic case of confusion in the kind of the, the Malay at the time. I think there are deliberate attempts to obscure who really knew what. And I think that is very, very clear and can be demonstrated. But absolutely nobody anywhere near authority is ever going to admit that, because if they do, the whole basically the structure of the united states of america will crumble um that's a very serious consequence and people like david ray griffin has said before you expose 9-11 you might just want to think about what the consequences of that would be so 
even people that would not have approved of what happened might also even if they thought it was dodgy think yeah but do we want to actually show the world this so that's another problem but then you look at the footage and you go whoa hold on a minute this doesn't seem to make sense so i think that's why that's become like the key if you like the symbol of 9 11 because we all saw it right right uh, and i i've gone back and forth on you know the um, what what may have been responsible for bringing the uh, the buildings down and uh, the stumbling block for me, and, and I, I certainly believe that that elements of the the operation, if not its entirety, were orchestrated from inside the United States. Uh, the stumbling block for me is how does one wire a hundred and ten story building uh, for controlled demolition? And maybe you could uh, offer some insights on that. Well, yeah. I mean, listen, we have the testimony of people like Scott Forbes, who was working in one of the towers. He says that a, a few days before 9-11, the, there was a, a security power down. Now, I've met Scott. He seems to me a very reliable person. No reason to make this up. Uh, security dogs were removed. The cameras were taken offline. And men came in with, well, what they were told was, a, you know, a, a cable upgrade with spools and various equipment. To this day, nobody has ever identified who these men actually were. This has never been officially admitted to, even though people at the towers did witness this. There was lift shaft maintenance going on in the uh, run-up to 9-11. Those would have provided very good sort of places to put devices that would help bring the buildings down. It would have offered, you know, access to key places. So actually, there is evidence that people were doing strange things in those towers before 9-11 occurred. And we should not forget that a lot of people did seem to know something was in the offing. People didn't turn up for work that day. People didn't get onto certain planes that day. Uh, the mayor of San Francisco, Willie Brown, was told not to fly that day. Why? Somebody must have known something was in the offing. Uh, we also know, of course, that there were put options, which is basically when you bet that the stock of a company is going to go down on the, the, the markets on the very companies that were affected by 9-11. Uh, you don't do that by chance. It's like it was out there. Somebody knew something big was about to happen. And so, therefore, you know, the notion that people were at work in those towers before then, when you look at the evidence that they were, is not so hard to imagine. And, of course, some have drawn interesting conclusions from the fact that the security management of the World Trade Center was uh, had a, a member of the Bush family involved. Now, that could just be coincidence, but, you know, you can't entirely ignore that, uh, and therefore you have to wonder what was going on. Also, just shortly before the towers collapsed, uh, Larry Silverstein took out destruction insurance, which nobody had ever thought to take out before, presumably because they'd never thought the buildings could come down, and, uh, you know, did pretty well out of that again now is this coincidence possibly but then when you put it together with everything else you wonder so let's say that people did go into those buildings and they did place devices now of course the next question is well who were they now there is a kind of a counter conspiracy that says well they may have been al-qaeda operatives well you can't entirely rule that out 
but then at the same time you know these people had a lot of access to two very important buildings uh they would have had to have been working in tandem with somebody that was you know a part of the official command structure there so whichever way you look at it it seems impossible to believe that there wasn't some kind of a coalition of forces at work there so no, I don't find it so strange that such devices could have been planted. And, you know, if you're looking for a smoking gun at 9-11, it is the collapse of building number seven, which was never hit by aeroplanes yes. and had damage from debris and fire. But you look at the footage of the fire and it's very hard to believe that could possibly have brought down a building in the way we see it just go down like a pack of cards. And, uh, you know, many people who've been investigating say that the official report that says it was fire is effectively scientific fraud. And actually, when you read the fact that when they did computer models of the fires that might have brought down computer set up building seven, and you realize that what they did was not actually include the real fires, but just model in the fires that you would need for the building to collapse. That is scientific fraud. But they then tell the world, all right, we've shown how it came down due to fire. Well, yeah, but it wasn't the fires that were actually there. It was the fires that they presumed would have to be there to bring the building down. So, Things like that are extremely suspicious. And of course, if anybody listening wonders why would they bring down building number seven, and by then it had been evacuated, nobody was in it, well, a lot of people believe 9-11 may have been at least partially coordinated from that building, and they had to bring the evidence down at the end of the day. Uh, but again, let coming me to firm conclusions is a different matter. Indeed. Let me uh, jump in. We'll take another time out. We'll come back. I want to talk about a famous New Yorker who was there at the time and uh, may have his, uh, his own suspicions. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Hour two, segment three, six minutes, coming down in three, two, one. Andy Thomas is with us, and the second edition of Conspiracies, the Facts, the Theories, the Evidence, uh, will be available in February. Uh, in the meantime, can people pre-order? I'm sure they can. Yes, go onto Amazon, and uh, you can normally pre-order there. So I would imagine, yes. We were talking about 9-11, and uh, I mentioned a famous New Yorker. That, of course, is President Trump, who, by all accounts, is is very interested in conspiracy theories. And there was kind of an offhanded remark that he made that was directed at Jeb Bush during the Republican debates. He alluded to 9-11, and... Uh, almost in a, in a subtle way, kind of implicating the Bush family. It didn't get much media coverage, but it, it was it was one of his, you know, quips. And it was within days that Jeb Bush pulled out of the uh, the race for the nomination. I believe he cited some campaign financing issues or, or whatever it was. Uh, do you recall that? And then I'd, I'd like to, to talk about your thoughts on, on, on Trump and his interesting conspiracies. Well, I mean, you know, what you cite there, yes, I was surprised that didn't get picked up on more by the media, but that in itself is very telling, because it's funny, even with somebody like Donald Trump, who normally the media are very happy to blame for every conspiracy going, when it comes to things like 9-11, mysteriously, they won't go there. 
Well, you can find much more direct evidence of what Trump thought about 9-11. Now, I don't know if this is still on YouTube. If it is, it probably won't be for long with the current censorship program. But there is a video of Donald Trump in the streets of New York just a few days after 9-11 stating his belief that bombs may have been involved. Now, he says it categorically, and it's quite extraordinary that nobody has picked up on this more. So clearly he had heard something, and this is obviously long before he was running for president or any of that. He had heard something which suggested to him that there was more to it than just a natural collapse. So, yes, he is on record as questioning 9-11. And some had hope that when he became the president that he might sort of initiate a new investigation. And I discussed this in the conspiracies book. But then it's like even he seems to have backed off of that. He's perhaps realized he's got to play the game. And some people who believe did not tell the truth about 9-11 at the time, like Mayor Rudy Giuliani, um, Trump, in fact, appointed Giuliani to various positions. And uh, some of the people that you would have thought actually he would have been questioning in regard to 9-11, apparently not. He's sort of taken them on board. So I think the odds of that now ever coming to light uh, is not going to happen. So Trump may well say certain things out of turn, but uh, sadly on 9-11, it sounds like he's uh, not going to do anything about any new investigation, which I know some people had hoped that he would. How how much of... The uh, attempts, uh, let's say, let's call it a soft coup attempt by the intelligence community, by the the Democrats, the mainstream media, constantly maligning him and his administration. How much of that has to do with the fact that he is a loose cannon? He may know where the bodies are buried. I'm sure that is a part of it. Yes, I am. Um, You know, we've seen demonstrated with Donald Trump that... (laughs) You know, if he's in the right mood, he might tweet anything out one night. But that said, maybe even he has his limits. And he is probably told, as I think any president is told, the day you get into power, there are certain places you don't go if you want to remain president. So I'm sure somebody would have read this to him at some point. But yes, I, I do think there is a wariness around Trump. And on one level, that makes him a more dangerous man. But of course, on the other level... Uh, This is the very thing that makes him powerful because his unpredictability, of course, means that you can never second guess him. And I mean, in the book, the new version of conspiracies, of course, there's there's a lot about Trump, which was not there in the original edition because Trump was not in the running for president. What is fascinating with Donald Trump, and I've tried to come to a completely balanced view here because I know a lot of people love him and a lot of people hate him, but is that he's very much the conspiracy president. He believes in a number of conspiracy theories, but of course, he's also the target of many of them. And as I just alluded to, it's funny how the media say they don't like conspiracy theories. They don't believe in them. Ah, until it comes to Donald Trump, when they believe in all of them, if they can. And of course, the the big one is the one that he worked with uh, Russia to get elected. Well, that's not been proven. Now that's moved on to the issues about Ukraine and Joe Biden. So it's a funny thing, you know, that the conspiracies which the media doesn't normally go near, if they see it as a way of getting at Donald Trump, suddenly they do. And that's been a big development. Uh, And of course, I discussed that very much in the book. Indeed. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serra from Zoomer Radio. 
Andy Thomas. And uh, the second edition of Conspiracies, the Facts, the Theories, the Evidence will be available in February. You can go to Amazon and the website again. So my website is truthagenda.org and you can find out all about me, all about the book and uh, there's lots of videos there. You can watch me giving talks and covering some of this stuff. So uh, yeah, truthagenda.org. We were talking about Donald Trump and one of the things uh, that I noticed with Donald Trump and you called him the, you know, the conspiracy president. Uh, once he became president, terms like deep state uh, and globalists, those became almost common currency in the mainstream media where before they were just, they were never uttered. Just comment on that phenomenon. Well, I mean, one of the big conspiracy theories that has got itself attached to Trump, whether with or without his knowledge, is, uh, of course, the QAnon conspiracy movement. So for anybody listening that is still not aware of this, so QAnon claims to be indeed a deep state mole. Somebody or a group of people working somewhere within the deeper US government departments. Um, they effectively are pro-Trump. So the word that's come out from there says that the New World Order, which, you know, that is in the true sense of it being like a, a plot and not a very good plot at that to gain global dominion, is working against Donald Trump because Donald Trump being a bit of a loose cannon is going to in some way damage their plans. So they're saying that a lot of the stories that have come out about Trump have been deliberately seeded out there to discredit him because the New World Order feels threatened by him. So QAnon, this is why when you see certain political rallies now in America, you sometimes see people holding up a big letter Q and it, this is what it's about and even there was um, there was a parade where a member of the military had a Q badge on, which he got disciplined for indeed afterwards um, you know, this is sort of leaked out it's become a movement which many people think should be taken seriously but then at the same time this same deep state mole has, uh, you know, been responsible for the Pizzagate story. Now, this was a story where various pizza parlors were being used to generate basically a, a child pedophilia ring. Now, that has not ever been proven. And it went big and a lot of people, you know, thought this was very serious. It's not gone public to the degree where anybody has ever come forward and claimed that they were abused. And yet this had big currency. And they have named various people in high positions as being paedophiles, but it isn't proven. So QAnon's become extremely controversial. And so if Trump saw this as a benefit, other people say this could actually damage him and I notice he seems to have distanced himself a little bit more from it in recent times but yeah so the deep state are like people working absolutely at the complete root level of what makes the nation tick over there but of course they apparently will have access to what makes the globe tick and these are people that we don't normally hear about but if QAnon was shown to be a hoax, of course, which is what some people say it is, and that was exposed as a hoax, a lot of the people that have gone along with the QAnon theories are going to look very exposed. Uh, and indeed, that will be used, if that were the case, to bring down the reputation of conspiracy theory in general or even further. So it's a dangerous, it's a dangerous movement. And the problem with the deep state is 
you never really get to know much about it. And if somebody says they're working for the deep state, are they or are they just saying that? And that's the problem we always have, because unless there is absolute proof, it's tricky. Now, they do seem to have released things which most people wouldn't have known, which some of which has turned out to be verifiable. So it does look like it's been it's being done by somebody that knows something but how much they really know or whether this isn't in itself a setup designed as i say to discredit conspiracy theorists it, it's still unknown but it's yeah it's certainly something which has added a whole other level into this well the the, the pizzagate story you know in itself the details may have been erroneous and, and discredited but the narrative appears to have some currency certainly in light of you know the jeffrey epstein case and in england jimmy savile and and uh, you know people have been uh, talking about this i'm sure you've been talking about this people on my show have been alluding to this for a, a decade or more uh, and was just it was a radioactive story. You know, you were never to mention that that Bill Clinton was on the Lolita Express and the flight manifests are, you know, are on the Internet and so forth. Uh, the mainstream media wouldn't touch it until basically they were shamed into it. Well, I mean, over here in the UK, of course, uh, we've just had the big scandal over Prince Andrew. Now, Andrew is proven, is known to have been a friend of Epstein's, even when he said he wasn't. Um, of course, now his reputation has been effectively shattered, uh, even though he denies some of the accusations made against him. But he is just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, and there's a number of high-level people that clearly have had dealings with Epstein, including Donald Trump, who are all denying that they knew anything about this. But Prince Andrew's the, the weak pin in this because he made denials and now it's all come out that in fact, uh, you know, he did know a lot more than he knew and may or may not have been involved with various cases of abuse, some would call it. It's a big one because people like David Icke have been alluding to paedophile rings in high places for a very long time and he's been attacked as a madman and a fantasist. But now... With the Epstein thing having come out, of course, that's not looking quite so crazy. Now, that doesn't mean that all theories out there about this kind of thing are true, but it does mean, again, that they shouldn't be entirely discounted. And it's interesting how quickly the establishment is trying to push the Epstein thing behind it in the hope that it all goes away. And indeed, uh, some of the people that have been trying to fly drones over some of the older places where Epstein had, you know, houses and swimming pools and that, have noticed that a lot of buildings where some of the abuse was said to have taken place have been removed. So it does look like there is a, a now a, a very fast program to try to destroy as much evidence as possible. So even if claims do get made, proving them is going to be very, very difficult, as indeed uh, the, the lady that is making claims against Prince Andrew is finding. And now people are you know, criticizing her and they're attacking her character. This is always what happens. Nonetheless, I think enough has been shown that, you know, clearly something dubious has occurred here. And we know that people in very high places were involved. But I think proving that, unless somebody comes forward again with the big smoking gun, it's going to be tricky. It's going to be hard to prove it. And of course, the minute they start attacking the characters of the people making the claims, anybody else considering coming forward with their own evidence, seeing what's happened to the other people, well, they may decide to stay quiet. And it may be something which never really comes to a firm conclusion. But that sadly is uh, often the way with these things. Indeed, unless 
we can locate uh, Ghislaine Maxwell and uh, make her sing. Uh, but she seems to have disappeared off the face of the earth. Well, listen, Ghislaine Maxwell was walking free when people did know where she was and when they already knew what she was part of and nobody touched her. And now she seems to have uh, flown away in every literal sense. And it's hard to believe that they did anything other than let her go because they should have taken her in for questioning a long time ago she absolutely knows where the bodies are buried so to speak uh and yeah that in itself is a, a big big factor in making you think okay there was something behind all of this so there you go this is uh, the way the world works they know that all they've got to do is obfuscate for long enough that even though you might at the end all conclude yeah that was a conspiracy proving it getting to you know actually convicting anybody of it probably not going to happen uh andy we've barely touched uh, or scratched the surface but uh congratulations on the second edition of conspiracies the facts the theories the evidence and uh keep on fighting the good fight my friend and you too and thank you for the opportunity to talk about the book thank you my pleasure okay that's it for me back next week with lex lonehood from coast to coast am in the meantime don't be afraid There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.